Welcome back to the show. Today, you are in for an incredible episode. We are speaking with Lion Goodman. He is a transformational coach, author, healer, and teacher. At the age of 26, Lion was shot in the head four times. This near-death experience kick-started his five decades of research into the nature of consciousness, developmental psychology, spirituality, and healing. He created the Clear Beliefs Method of Trauma-Informed Therapeutic Coaching, which he has taught to more than 500 coaches, healers, and therapists from around the world. His training is accredited by both the International Coaching Federation and Association for Coaching. In a single session, Lion can eliminate a client's limiting or negative belief from their conscious mind, heal a childhood wound, or resolve a trauma from the past. The clear beliefs method is a multidimensional approach to rapid, deep healing. Lion has taught workshops and training from around the world and authored five books, including Creating on Purpose, Clear Your Clients, Limiting Beliefs, and Men Enlightenment. He is a co-author of a new book, Transforming Trauma, that is now available. This is a very powerful podcast and one that hit me at a point in my life that I knew I needed to be in this podcast episode with Lion and learning directly from him. I'm so grateful that you get to be a part of this episode. I know you're going to absolutely love it. Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I am your host, Marsha Van Weinsberg. I'm a business coach, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, When She Stopped Asking Why. On this podcast, we will use the tips, tools, and strategies used by myself and our speakers to break through and overcome the challenges in our lives. When we take radical responsibility of our choices, create boundaries, grow our courage and practice self-care and letting go of what isn't ours to control, we can completely change our stories. When we take full ownership of our stories, we take back our personal power and this allows us to impact, serve and support others by showing them that they are not alone and helping them find freedom from their stories. When you own your choices, you truly own your life. Let's dive in. Welcome to the show today, Lion. I'm so thrilled to meet you and have this discussion. Thanks, Marsha. I'm I'm totally gassed about being on your show. You, we've had already had, as usual, we end up having a conversation before we start the podcast. Um, so before we dive in to parts of your story, because there's so many pieces to it, I would love it if you would just give a really simple intro as to who you are, and then we're going to dive into your story. Well, that's a really good question, uh, because I've been looking for who I am since I was a teenager, and I've found many parts of me. <laughs> so uh, I could answer. Any, any answer I give is going to be a limitation on who I actually am in the same way that any answer you gave would be a limitation. But I'll, I'll give it a go. I'm a, I'm a coach, a therapeutic coach. I help people clear the past and make a better future. I'm a teacher of a methodology that I developed over a 20-year period, and that methodology is dedicated toward clearing limiting beliefs out of the system, healing trauma, and resolving childhood wounds so that whatever is weighing a person down and preventing them from moving forward, we have a way of clearing it out of the way so that their true self can shine and they can move forward without resistance. 
Wow. I cannot wait for this conversation. Thank you so much for your, like for your intros. I sit here because limiting beliefs is a topic. There's so many pieces of your story we want to dive into, but limiting beliefs, let's just start there. What is a limiting belief? Where do they come from? Okay. First of all, all beliefs are limiting. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because a belief is taking a segment of the universe mm -hmm. and putting a label on it so that it's easy to understand or handle. For example, you see a cat walking by. Now, that cat is a multidimensional creature with its own personality, its own history, its own long history of being felines back to lions and tigers. And as soon as you look at it, if you look deeply into it, you see this magnificent amazing creature that's unique and spectacular. Mm -hmm. But what we normally do is we look down and we say, oh, that's a cat. And then our attention goes away from it and we don't get the pleasure of seeing it as its true self. So even a simple statement like that is a cat, which is a belief, mm -hmm. is a limiting of the universe to into a package that can be handled. And this is part of the how the mind works. It's called the patterning instinct. We have an instinct to identify patterns in the world and then use those patterns as the structure of the world and as a way to navigate in the world. So an infant who's fresh out of the womb is in a swirl of sensations and multidimensional aspects of itself, some thoughts that aren't really structured and feelings and sen body sensations. <clears throat> and it's looking at, at the patterns that come to it, trying to figure out what is this. So one face comes close and the baby feels a sense of comfort and nurturing and, and goodness, right? Mm -hmm. Another face comes close and it feels prickly and weird. And so it, the child begins to identify the patterns. Okay, I when that face is coming, I know I'm going to get cared for. When that face is coming, I know I'm going to feel uncomfortable. So this is the patterning instinct at its core. And that is the beginning of beliefs because we're putting together an understanding of the world. And then we have our own ideas. Eventually we come up to our own conclusions. Oh, I'm being beaten. Therefore, I must be a bad person. Because children know what they expect. They, they expect to be nurtured and loved and seen and welcomed. And when those things aren't happening, then there's a deficit in their environment. And most children blame themselves. It must be me. It must be something about me that's horrible, bad, right? And then we get start getting programmed by our parents and then our siblings and then our church or synagogue or mosque and then our classroom and then our teachers and then the people around us and the kids and then the media and all of those structures come into us and the ones we accept are additional beliefs on top of the ones we've come up with ourselves and so then we inherit beliefs from our parents in their generations past and those are transgenerational beliefs they kind of come in with the dna and of course we do have our biological beliefs like you know touch is good until that gets deprogrammed and touch is bad, right? So we are a swirl of these beliefs that help us navigate in the world and they form our personality, how we respond, or the choices we make. And 
how we get along in the world. I can just thank you for that explanation. I I do not believe that has ever been explained in that way. And I could just, all I kept picturing was this onion where it's like literally like it's just this piles on and this piles on more layers and more layers. And then we get to a space where it's like, I don't even know what my, I just assume this is all my beliefs. These are all my beliefs, but they're actually not at the core. They are a collection of everything that I have been experiencing or surrounding myself by. And then what I choose to believe. Yes. And choice is probably the last of the possibilities because most people don't choose what they believe. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they do. For example, a child might say, if I'm just like dad, I'll be loved and paid attention to. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to choose to be like dad. And I'm going to say the same things he does. I'm going to believe the same things he does. Because if you want to belong to a group, take on their beliefs. And that's how we belong to something. And the first group we belong to is our family. So children are actually eager to take on their parents' beliefs because there's a rule of the mind, very primitive rule that says, if I am like them, they will like me and therefore they won't throw me out to the wolves or flush me down the toilet. So we take on the beliefs of our parents in order to be as aligned as we can with them that ensures our survival. And so most of us don't have choice. You know, if a child could say, wow, mom and dad are really screwed up. They should have taken parenting 101 before they yeah. had me. They, they did need some therapy. <laughs> They're really screwed up. I'm okay. They're screwed up. But, but that's not what children do. Mother and father are like God and goddess who brought them into the world. They must be perfect. Mm -hmm. There must be a problem with me. Wow. Okay. Already. So it's interesting because I can even just picture myself as a child. I was always told that I was too much, definitely too much. And I grew up in the seventies. I didn't agree with a lot of the things that I would see or hear. And I used to speak that many times. And I was told you just be quiet. Like children are to be seen and not heard. And Marsha, nobody wants to hear that. That's not, I'm like, we don't treat people like that. I don't understand. So little things that I, I could see, I was like always fighting this mold of where I was, but that also led to a lot of um, doubt too, because I'm watching this over here, not feeling like I fit with this. And then, you know, I can just, so I can just see how it's, even if you go with what you're being told or you fight against it can still lead to a lot of discomfort. Absolutely. And, and let me ask you a question. Do you ever have a voice in your head that says you're too, I'm too much? Not too often. Sometimes it shows up. Sometimes it shows up less as I get older, less as I get older. Right. Um, but no, I've worked really hard to not have that be the driving force. Yeah, I understand. That's called introjection. We take our parents' voices, whatever they're saying, and we interject them into our own mind and put it in our own voice so that we think it's something that we're saying, but in fact, it's a parental belief that we've taken in and owned now. Mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of these beliefs are hard to get rid of because, well, I, I, it's true that I'm too much. I see it all the time because beliefs also operate like 
filters in front of our eyes and we see the world through them. So I'm seeing evidence. Oh, that person looked at me funny. I guess that means I'm too much. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that person doesn't want to be my friend. I guess I'm too much. So beliefs are always self-verifying, which is another problem with them, that we see evidence for them wherever we look. Okay. So we have beliefs that we are working. We, we want to talk. I want to talk about the beliefs. I also, you talk about um, trauma. And how now, so let's just picture that we have this belief system that might or might not be serving us. Probably most of the time it's not. Now trauma sets in. I would love to hear your definition, your explanation of trauma and how that can compound with limiting beliefs. Sure. Um, you may have heard the phrase that trauma is not just about what happens to you. It's about what didn't happen for you. <laughs> So when I was talking about the, the deficit in a family, if you are ignored, if your needs are not cared for, if you're told that you shouldn't have needs, if you are abandoned, if a parent dies or leaves, uh, all of these things are traumas at the developmental level. Mm -hmm. So if my big brother's beating me up all the time, I'm going to form beliefs because he's standing over me telling me what a piece of junk I am mm -hmm. and hearing that and being convinced because he's bigger, smarter and, and, uh, and stronger than I am. And so I take on that belief and now it's my belief. Mm -hmm. I'm a piece of junk. And then I go around and other people reinforce it. So the parents are these big people who we depend on for our survival. And so whatever they say, we take in. Now, you were lucky you had a rebellious streak. And at some point in life, at some point, I did too. At some point in life, that kicks in and you go, wait a minute. I, I don't believe that because mm -hmm. there's, there's other evidence out there that's not that. And then you're told that your questioning is bad and wrong. So that reinforced that now, yeah, I have to make a decision. Do I give up my rebellion and comply in order to belong? Or do I risk not belonging by having different ideas, different thoughts, or not shutting up? And, and so any of these things can be traumatizing. Now, here's the key about beliefs. Bad things happen to all of us. Mm -hmm. We get in an accident. And that hap that actually happened. It caused physical damage, and the body knows how to repair, and so it repairs the best it can, a little physical therapy, and you're kind of back as new, right? However, the decision you make after the accident is where trauma comes in. So if I'm in a car accident and I, I think to myself, it was my fault that someone died. Now... I've got that belief to live with, and that's what I carry forward, and that's what impacts the rest of my life. If your parents beat you and you decide, I'm a terrible person, or I'm a sinner, then, th then it's that choice, that decision, that belief that gets carried forward, and that's what stops us. So it's not having been beaten by your father. It's the choice, the decisions you made about who you are that is the trauma that gets carried forward. Because the in an accident, your body kind of resolves what it needed to resolve and it gets back to normal. But with trauma, if we don't resolve it in that moment, then it gets stuck 
And it's a little piece of us that's stuck in that place, having that experience. And then it's stuck. And then again, we're back to compiling and compounding like experiences, people, like environment, everything that we're being exposed to, or that we are putting ourselves into situations because if we don't believe that we are, if if we are really truly believing our limiting beliefs and like they're so real and raw to us, and then we don't feel worthy, how often do we put ourselves in situations where it's just, yep, there's confirmation, there it is right there. I see it. I guess I'm not meant to have that. And all of that just continues to compound. Absolutely. Um, Here's a key of the mind uh, that I think is really important to share with everyone. And that is that experience wants to be experienced. And if you don't experience it, if you resist it, push it away, push it down, shove it aside, escape by dissociating, it doesn't get fully resolved. It can't get fully resolved. And so it's a little tiny stuck place in our consciousness. And it becomes, it takes a little bit of attention to keep it stuck. And so if you have a lot of these experiences, more and more of your attention is keeping those experiences and feelings and sensations away. And you have less and less free attention to actually live life. And so our way of resolving trauma is to go back to the experience and to very slowly and carefully re-experience it so that the full experience can be processed. And then we also work with changing memory. It's called memory reconsolidation in psychology, where we go back and actually change our memory of the past and, and free ourselves from those decisions that we made back then. Okay, this is absolutely blowing my mind, which I absolutely love. Um, we're in this space is like being able to take someone through that experience in order to change it. I was reading recently that 50% of our memories are not accurate. Like we actually have created this, this picture of how it folded or what we remember. And so how do you go back and do this work with somebody to be able to change the actual experience that happened to them for them, however we look at it? How do we do that if some of their memories aren't accurate? Does their body remember you taking them through that experience? What does that look like? Let's start by talking about experience. Experience is multidimensional. We have thoughts. Right now, you're having thoughts, you're having feelings, you're having body sensations, you're having uh, uh, awareness of your environment. You can, you're touching, clothes are touching your body, you're touching your desk. Uh, This is a multidimensional experience, and we're always having multidimensional experiences. Mm -hmm. So a trauma from the past and a memory from the past is a multidimensional structure, let's call it. It's actually the infrastructure of the human mind. So if you go back and try to change someone's mind with mental or verbal techniques alone, like talk therapy, Mm -hmm. it doesn't touch the emotions. It doesn't touch the physical body. It doesn't touch the the experience of the time and the moment and and the incident and the smells of the people around them at that time. So in order to clear a memory, you have to go back to its full multidimensional aspect where it's a direct experience and get the person comfortable and safe enough that they can go through it 
breathe through it, feel it completely, see it completely, see what happened, slow down time so that you can take time to process it. Because what normally happens with a trauma is that you shove it away because it's overwhelming. Children get easily overwhelmed. And so they just shut down the sense that is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so we're going back and we're having to open that shut door very slowly and carefully so that the full experience can come back. And then it can resolve, then it can complete, and then you have space for something new. Yeah, because once you've cleared that, I can just see um, the explanation you said before. I feel like we've, we've got these little knots in our system and in our body where it's this trap trauma. So now as you are helping them to go through that experience and release it, I just see space, like in space and available space for new experiences. Yeah. And the same thing is true with beliefs. When you have someone clear a belief out of the psyche completely, it leaves space for something new. And then we ask, what would you prefer to believe? And we give that choice to the person. They get to decide what they want to believe instead. So if if I believed I'm a piece of junk from my father, and I actually clear that multidimensionally from my psyche, now there's space. And now when you ask me, what would you prefer to believe? I can actually think, wow, what would give me the experience I want in life? I want to be open and filled with light and love. So I choose the belief, I'm a child of God, uh, light shining in all directions. And then there's room to plant it. I use the analogy of a garden. You know, If you wanted to build a garden, the first thing you do is you clear the rocks and weeds from the soil, and then you turn over the soil and amend it, and then you plant your seeds, and then they can grow. If you throw seeds on rocky, weedy ground, you're not going to get much. And most techniques that are trying to add new beliefs to your old beliefs are simply adding seeds to rocky, weedy ground. But if you clear the ground first, if you clear the old beliefs first, then there's space. And then when you plant the new belief, it can blossom in your life. The same as the old one did. It's just that the old one blossomed as a dead thing that's, you know, taking up space and time. Yeah, I actually, right before you said that, I just had this visual of trying to plant something in the ground with say it's a an overgrown bed so even if it's not um even if it's not rocks but an overgrown um bed when we first bought our house the people who had it before they loved english gardens no offense to anybody who's listening but it was like overgrown was an understatement and my neighbor said well why don't you just plant something different i'm like how could i plant anything it's so full like everything was so full so i see that same analogy in the sense that we so many times here, you know, do your gratitudes, say your affirmations, do these things. And that can create change. When I was in probably one of my lowest states, when we were dealing with so much with our kids, I was desperately wanting to create change because I hated where I was at. But then at the same time was feeling like I must be doing something wrong because gratitudes aren't working for me. Like this is not working. And I just wanted to share that piece because I actually was very resistant to, I, I think that gratitudes are a piece of, of the work that we do, but they're not going to fix if we're in this state. That is true. Uh, affirmations or gratitude statements are an outside-in approach to change. Mm-hmm. And if the inside is rocky, weedy, overgrown, there's no room for it to take. 
That's why you have to do it over and 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 over. And then it still doesn't work. Every once in a while it does, which is like, hey, that's great. But for most people, most of the time it doesn't work because it's an outside in approach. Our approach is inside out. Go in and clear out the space, make space for something new. And then you don't have to keep repeating it over and over because the 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 seed is growing, it's blossoming, and you don't have to, you know, you water it every once in a while, but you don't have to go and plant it every day. (laughs) (laughs) I can picture planting every single day, starting over, starting over, starting over. Okay, so this led you to creating your own system. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, First of all, I've had incredible teachers throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And I've taken over 100 workshops and trainings. And with each one, I was trying to fix myself because I had the belief there was something wrong with me and I had to fix it. Right. So, so, you know, good motivation for self-development. So I took everything I could with every guru, teacher, and workshop leader I could, uh, did shamanic studies for 20 years, figuring that maybe I could find the answer that way. And in every every technique I tried, there was something of value there. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of it was crap, but there was something of value. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for saying that. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I like to speak truthfully. Uh, so... Um, so what I did is is I began to look at what was it that moved me? What was it that actually made change? And what I saw was that when there was a substantial change, there was a belief change in me. And it was deep. And that shifted everything. And so I began studying beliefs themselves. What are they? Where do they come from? How do they function? And and then there were lots of people showing, you know, we'll help you change your beliefs by, you know, in 20 days or less. And so I tried all of those techniques. And some of those worked well, and most of them didn't. And so I took I I tried to understand what is it that makes it work. And what I discovered was this thing I mentioned earlier, which is that beliefs are multidimensional. Our experience is multidimensional. And to clear a belief, you need to clear it multidimensionally. Otherwise, you clear the emotional aspect, but the mental, verbal, body sensations are still there. Or you beat a pillow and you clear it out of your body, but the mental, emotional, and psychic environmental issues are still there. But when you clear it multidimensionally, Boom, it's gone and it doesn't come back. So that's where my that's where my technology came from was that long 20 plus year uh, experimenting with different techniques and, and synthesizing the best of the best and then adding my own special flavors that came from source. So it all came together. I, I love how it's all come together. And there's so many questions I still want to ask you on that. But I also have to assume you've come through a lifelong journey yourself to get here. Like this is this your the only way to get here as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's no fast track. <laughs> <laughs> I tried taking okay. the express train, but it was just the uh, the local. That <laughs> I literally, I, that makes me laugh because I think of how many times I used to joke, oh, I must have got on the wrong bus because I certainly took, I took a, a different road than a lot of people, but that's okay. It's all part of, and it was my road. I own that. That's exactly, I couldn't do the work I do today if I hadn't walked the path that I did, which mm-hmm. I know is true. And I know that you have had tremendous experience, life experience, 
with trauma that has led you to do the work that you're doing today. So I would love it if you would share part of your backstory that led you to here. Sure. Well, to speak of early childhood trauma, my mother was not really prepared to have children. Mm -hmm. She wanted to be an actress, but she was following the social structure of, of what you were supposed to do. She got married to my father. He was a pretty cool guy. Um, and she began having babies. And now it, she, nobody had ever taught her how to take care of babies. So she had to ask neighbors, how do I change a diaper? And how do I cook? And she was she was a, a, an only child. And her parents didn't ex ever express love to her. So she didn't really know much about love. She could mechanically care for us. Mm -hmm. But there was no deep connection. So, for example, I was bottle fed. Right. Bottle feeding is great if you don't have breast milk, but we're built for breast milk, not for cow's milk or formula. Right. And so I, I've done enough memory work to remember being an infant and having my stomach hurt because of what I was taking in. And it wasn't the right thing for my body. So I was in pain. Colicky babies often have this problem. <clears throat> they, they're, they're unhappy. It's not working for them. They're given the wrong stuff for their bodies, you know, cow's milk is for calves, not humans, as an example, uh, but we feed it to babies as if it's okay. And then, and so when I would cry out, I might have gotten taken care of mechanically, but I wasn't held and loved and supported and seen to be the unique being I was. I was an object in my mother's life. So, I felt separate. Now, this is the first early wound is feeling separate. Not that's the deficit. I wasn't cared for as a as a being. I was cared for as an object. And my mother did well caring for objects. That was she was good at that. Mm -hmm. But trying to connect with her, trying to be seen by her, trying to be known to her never worked. So I lived a very lonely childhood. I had an older sister and later two younger brothers. And I couldn't connect with them either. I, in fact, one of my teachers said, well, you didn't connect with anyone when you were young, did you? Not even the dogs. I went, nope, didn't even connect with the dogs. Yeah. So I was this isolated kid, and I was trying to figure it out myself. And that was my strategy, because we also developed strategies from our traumas. And my strategy was, well, if I could just figure it out, if I could figure out how people work, I might be able to be normal. And fortunately, after 40 plus years of trying, I found out that I'm, I will never be normal. And thank God for that. So, exactly. So, and in fact, there was nothing wrong with me in the first place, but that's a whole other story. So, so that was, that was the core. That was my foundation and my strategy based on those wounds. I call it the rocket fuel of the wound. So the wound creates a certain force toward a strategy. Sometimes the strategy is to comply. I'll do whatever they say. Sometimes it's to rebel, as you know very well. Sometimes yep. it's to fight back. Sometimes it's to manipulate. And sometimes it's just to give up. Those are just some of the strategies that we can use as children. Uh, and so, and sometimes it's to make a big fuss until you're cared for. <clears throat> so those are just some of the strategies. So our strategy points us in a particular direction. I was fortunate. I read books. I got teachers. I got interested in things. And so that's how I got here. And you got 
where you are by following your strategy based on the wound being rocket fuel. And then when you're an adult, you have to go, well, that's what got me here, but what's going to get me the next phase? It's like a rocket that gets outside the atmosphere can't use the same fuel that it used to get out of the atmosphere. So you have to switch fuel. And for me, that's our purpose. What are we here for? Who are we as souls? What are we here to do? How can we make a contribution? So it, at this age, and I'm getting older. Uh, <laughs> I think I've got to beat, so. <laughs> uh, you know, then we, we need a new strategy, new rocket fuel, new direction, because the old wounds and the old strategies sometimes took us down the wrong path, like drug addiction, alcohol addiction, criminality, etc. So those are strategies, too, to try to solve the problem of I'm not cared for, I'm not seen, I'm not loved, nobody's there for me. So all of the addictions come out of the same hole of the deficit of not being cared for and loved in the way we expect to be and need to be. And it's so thank you for sharing all that. The piece that just hits me is how we develop probably very subconsciously, we develop these strategies for what we believe is going to work. We get feedback in the moment. It's like, okay, that worked for me. I was definitely rebellious. I was definitely a fighter. Like there was no question. I was definitely a fighter. I have this, this phrase that I often say that there comes a point in life where our strengths, like they work for us for so long. So our strategy works for us for so long. And then it doesn't, we, we have to start to, we started to recognize that my fighter personality was not solving or fixing anything in my family, in my situation. I actually needed the exact opposite. And that was learning to let go of what wasn't mine to fix, manage, or control. And it's, I often say that it was like this, my strengths were my greatest asset until they weren't. And then I had to learn new ways to do things. And I'm so grateful that I chose to let go and learn new ways. Yeah. Uh, if you don't change, <laughs> you're going to end up where you're headed. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? So as you were growing up, you had a very, I don't want to call it a unique, but I think it's a very unique situation that happened to you in your young 20s that I do not believe I've interviewed anybody who's had this experience. If you would like to share part of that story, because that is trauma compounded as well. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I was 26 years old. And I had graduated with a degree in consciousness studies from the University of Colorado. And it was, as far as I know, one of the first degrees granted in consciousness studies. I put it together myself. That was my my interest. And so I said, this is what I should do to get my degree. And they went, okay. Uh, so that's what they did for us in order for us to not rebel and overthrow the administration. So unfortunately, nobody was hiring people with degrees in consciousness. Uh, so oh. I got, no, I just couldn't find a job where I was needed. Uh, so I ended up uh, becoming a traveling salesman. And I traveled on the road for almost two years selling jewelry and gift items to stores. And I was driving around in an RV van. And um, and I was just getting to know the world, really. I had been a kid, and then I was a young adult, then I was an adult, then I was in college. Then, like, when do I get to see the world? So I was traveling the world and traveling mostly in the Southwest United States. 
And whenever I would see somebody whose car had broken down, I would stop and help them. I was a nice guy. So I would just have this need to be the good Samaritan on the road. Mm -hmm. And I was traveling from Las Vegas toward LA. And in the middle of the Mojave Desert, there was a guy whose car had broken down. His hood was up. He was staring into it as if he knew what to do. And he, you know, it was clear. And so I stopped. It was about 110 degrees outside, which at that time was quite hot. These days, it's getting to be more normal. Um, and I said, you know, can I, can I help you? And he said, oh, I just put $200 into her and she's broke. She's broken. I, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I'm heading into LA. Do you want to ride? And he looked at me kind of funny and he went, yeah, okay. And so he took his belongings, which were some duffel bags and boxes and things, and put them in my van. And the van was already crowded with a lot of my own stuff. Um, and we started driving and he ended up driving with me, traveling with me for three days. I'd stop and go, go into stores and I grew to trust him and send him on errands to gas up the car, get it washed, that kind of thing. And so uh, we'd camp out somewhere at night. And so we were out in the middle of nowhere, um, east of LA. Uh, and, uh, I was in the back of the van moving things around in this kind of crouched position, trying to get more room in the van by, moving things into cupboards and there was, and he was in the front of the van and suddenly there was an explosion and something hit me in the head and I, it was boom. It was a shock. And uh, I thought, well, maybe the gas stove exploded. And I looked up and the gas stove was okay. And then I looked to my left and there he was with a gun propped up on the back seat, pointing at my head. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was my reaction. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, my first thought was, okay, he's warning me. He wants my stuff. And so I just relaxed and I said, it's all yours because if he had left me outside in the desert naked, that would have been fine at that moment. Mm -hmm. But then he shot again and I realized I'm a sitting duck. He's 12 feet away. His arms propped up. He is not warning me. He's going to kill me. Okay, it's my time. And so at that moment, I thought, how do I want to die? I, I'd studied death and dying and spirituality throughout my college years. And so I, I knew I didn't want to die angry. I didn't want to die upset. I wanted to die in peace mm -hmm. since I was going to die. So I began going through my past and forgiving everyone who had, who had hurt me and asking forgiveness from anyone who I had hurt. And I was... You know, and then I also was looking to source and saying, okay, I'm coming home, you know, get ready, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I was filled with this light and love, just glowing light and love and everything was included, including him. And he shot again a third time. And the second and third bullets didn't hit me, but they came within fractions of an inch. And then I went, okay, well, I'm, I'm about to go. And so I'm floating out above, above the van, looking down at this little scene and going, isn't that interesting? <laughs> and, uh, out of body experience. I was out of body. I was a point of consciousness experiencing everything, including the land and the, you know, everything around me is this sort of ball of consciousness in, that included the van, right? As I was much bigger. Uh, and I could, because I was expanded in space, I was also expanded in time. So I could see the future and I saw the fourth bullet coming and, and hitting me and, going out my, the other side of my head. Um, and he shot again, another explosion. And suddenly I'm back in my body. And I thought, that's weird. I'm supposed to be out of my body. I'm, I'm back in my body. 
-hmm. And uh, and because I had studied physiology, neurology, and anatomy, I was kind of looking to see, well, what is missing? There ought to be something missing. If the bullet went through my head, uh, there ought to be some function missing, but I felt intact. I just, I couldn't find anything missing. My head hurt, but I was all there. And I thought at that moment, uh, if I'm going to die, I want to look my assassin in the eyes. And so I picked up my head, blood was rushing down all over the place. I picked up my head and I turned and I looked at him and he freaked out. And he said, why aren't you dead, man? You're supposed to be dead. And I didn't have an answer for that. So all I could say is here I am because I was still in this expansive light, golden white love space. And then he said, this is too weird, man. It's too weird. It was just like my dream this morning. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> and I said, "What dream?" And he said, "I this morning I dreamt I was shooting at this guy, and he wouldn't die. But it wasn't you; it was somebody else in the dream." And at that moment, I went, "Whoa, who is writing this script?" Like I found myself in the middle of a bad movie, and I'm I'm playing this role, and I have no idea what's going on. It was very confusing, uh, but at the same time, I thought, "Okay, well, if I can keep him talking, maybe he won't shoot me again." And so I used my voice very slow, very calm. And and he was jumping around because he was all adrenalated, of course. And and at one point, my time is like all compressed and stretched out weirdly. So I don't know what the timing was. But at one point, uh, after I was trying to calm him down, he kind of came over and looked at my head and said, does it hurt? Because I was there's blood all over the place. And I recognized, OK, he's made a shift. He's now caring. Mm-hmm. from being an assassin. <clears throat> and so I said, well, you know, it hurts, but I, I think I'm okay. And he said, okay, man, I'm going to take you to a hospital, I know. And I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. You know? Great, thank you. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> he got in the front of the van, started driving. I had no idea where we were going. I was sitting in the back, you know, with blood dripping still on my head. And I thought, this this is weird. Uh, you know, it's like... Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't expect this scene, you know, um, and he drove for a while and I had time to kind of put it, piece it back together. And then the van stopped uh, after quite a while and it and the engine turned off and um, I knew we weren't near a hospital because there were no bright lights, you know, no emergency room lights. And so he, he I was just waiting and there was silence. And then he walked back to where I was sitting and still crouched in this position. And he sat down next to me with a gun in his hand. He said, I, I can't take it to the hospital, man. I have to shoot you. I have to kill you. And I said, oh, why is that? I, I'm still trying to figure out how you're putting words together at this point, but yes. Okay. Wow. And he said, because if, if, if I take it to the hospital, they'll put me back in jail. I can't go back to jail, man. Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized, oh, not only is he a crazy person with a gun, he's an ex-con crazy person with a gun. So this is different. This is new news. <laughs> yeah, new information. So I again, I thought if I can keep him talking, maybe we can work this out. I said, well, you know, maybe uh, I won't. I won't turn you in. And he said, no, that won't work. I can't trust you, man. They'll they'll find me. They'll catch me. So that began a, about an eight-hour discussion with him about how do we get ourselves out of the situation? Because clearly he didn't want to kill me. Uh, he, I, I asked him, why Why didn't you kill me earlier? He said, well, I took my gun out a lot of different times to shoot you, but you were being nice to me, so I, I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I thought I was psychic. I thought I knew what was going on. I, I clearly proved that I am not psychic at that moment. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, I got him talking about his past, learned how he got into the situation and I won't go into it, but it's, it's, it's mm -hmm. anyway, eventually eight hours later, the sun came up. I heard birds singing and, oh my God, I was reborn. You know, it's the most beautiful sound in the world. And, uh, and we came to an agreement. And the agreement was, I would not turn him in, and he would never do anything like that again. And we shook on it. And we drove to a place that he knew. He got out of the car with his belongings. I drove myself to the hospital. And the doctor said, uh, you, two bullets grazed your skull. And uh, you're a lucky man. And I, I knew I wasn't lucky. I was blessed. So... Then I drove off and spent the next 30 days putting my life back together. Wow. That is an incredible story. Thank you for sharing that. And I can't even, I, I found myself as I'm listening to you, like just trying to be in that situation and imagine how the consciousness level and awareness you must have had to be able to calm yourself down after having had two gunshots, knowing this is probably the only chance I'm going to have is if I actually, is that, is that part of what was going through your head at that time? Because I'm still trying to like eight hours, you must've lost a lot of blood. Well, the blood eventually stopped because it was just a graze. It wasn't, you know, the bullet didn't go through my head. I didn't know that at the time I thought it had gone through and I, you know, it's like, but I'm still here. So I yeah. couldn't figure it out because I touched my head and I was all matted with blood and stuff. So mm -hmm. uh, one point, uh, at one point while after he stopped, uh, I said, I'm, I'm really in this uncomfortable position. I want to get out and stretch. And he said, okay. And I got out of the car and he pointed down a hill to a pond and uh, he kind of pointed, pointed me down there. So I started walking down the hill and he was behind me with a gun. I thought, well, he could, he could just shoot me in the back and push me into the water. That's possible. But I felt invincible somehow. Um, and so I washed off a lot of the blood off my face and <clears throat> I stood up and turned toward him and he kind of held out the gun to me and he said, what would you do if I gave you this gun? And I said, I'd throw it out in the water there. He said, you wouldn't shoot me? I said, no, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. He said, you're not mad at me? I said, no, I've got my life. You've got yours. We're okay. And he looked at me and he said, man, you are the weirdest person I've ever met. <laughs> if he is as, as convict at that point, probably who he had surrounded himself with and had been around, that is not the response that would have happened, right? So he's probably looking at you thinking like, what is wrong with you? Why are, why are you acting this way? Yeah, I've told this story uh, at San Quentin many times to prisoners there and they all react the same way. It's like, I would have killed him. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, it's, there's a different way. You know, I'm just showing you a different path, different possibilities. Yeah. Wow. That is a, thank you for sharing that story. That is definitely, um, that's definitely a first that I have heard. So when I sit here and I listen to it, you said you collected yourself, you gave yourself like the next 30 days to be able to kind of work through that experience. I have to believe that all of your work in consciousness studies, like everything that you did up until then, the knowledge that you had, the, the, everything that you were learning prepared you 
to respond differently in that situation. Because I'm going to say majority humans would not have responded that way. Yeah, true, true. Um, I was, I was in, I knew enough Mm -hmm. that I knew what I, what I didn't want to have happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and then that shift was a a big awakening, a big wake up call. Um, And so I tell people like, it was my path to awakening, but I don't recommend it as a path to awakening. (laughs) So uh, yeah, please take a different path. Um, uh, And so that spurred me on to study everything I could about human consciousness and the brain and neurology and people's behavior and psychology and physics, you know, physics and everything. I was just, I just wanted to learn everything. It's like, if this could have happened to me and this happened in that way, what else is possible? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You took, you definitely took that. And I mean, just the, everything you experienced there. So you continued on this path and it sounds like you've just been continually building and, and building your knowledge and tools. You've written a few books now. I have. What was your first book? Um, well, first of all, I, I want to say that I, I did take a left turn at that moment. Okay. Um, I, I realized I wanted to get off the road. I didn't want to be a traveling salesman anymore. I so I looked that. for a job <laughs> in LA and I got hired and I became a headhunter, <clears throat> which is kind of ironic, don't you think, after having <laughs> headhunted? We have but, to have a sense of humor. That was very, very good. Sorry. Yes. Uh, and And that was my career for 25 years. I mean, I found out I was really good at it. I was sensitive and psychic enough to match people well. Like I got very good at at my job. I ended up meeting the woman of my dreams. We got married. I had a baby. So I lived the life of a of a householder. Mm-hmm. Um, and weekends and and uh, and evenings, I would go and do shamanic journeys and you know explore consciousness and go to workshops that kind of thing. So I lived this kind of dual life. I had the life in the world. You know, my office in the Transamerica Pyramid building in San Francisco. And and then I'd go home and I'd change clothes and I'd go off and do drumming with men or you know, something like that. So so the, the exploration was you know, a part time job, uh, but I had my real job also. Um, and so, yeah, so so that's an important segment just to notice that, that some people, when they have this kind of dramatic experience, especially near death experience, they become spiritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was already spiritual, so I actually became grounded in reality, in business, in the business world, and so it had, kind of had the opposite impact. But it didn't stop my search, so that search continued until today. I'm still searching, still exploring. Exactly right, still searching. Thank you for sharing that explanation because I, I think well, obviously it's very important. But I can also hear, like, I, I have to believe your insight and your ability to communicate and understand and see people in different lights probably made you fantastic, like, as a headhunter. Because I think you could probably see you. Do you feel that you can see things in people that maybe they don't see in themselves yet? Definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I really take all my beliefs off, all the layers of beliefs off, I see people as balls of light. Mm. That's their true nature. Mm-hmm. Each one unique, like a star shining in the sky with its own frequency, its own color, its own way. And I know people at that level. So when I'm helping someone, I'm helping them awaken to their true self. 
mm-hmm. not to what I think they are or what I think they should be, or even what they think they are or what they should be, mm-hmm. but actually freeing them from the bounds mm-hmm. and the layers of programming so that they can be free to actually choose from that place of freedom rather than programming. Mm-hmm. Choosing from a place of freedom rather than programming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very, it's very deep. I love it because, I mean, I don't you think majority of people are so craving, like if you ask people, what do they, what do they want? Freedom is a big, is a big word that comes up, whether it's freedom of time, freedom financial, whatever that is, but to be able to choose their life from that space of freedom from, I like to refer to it as like our past stories. We, our story only ever has the meaning that we give it, right? We can, we can, you can put two people side by side who have both walked through the exact same and experienced the exact same story. They could very well have different meanings to those stories. Absolutely. We are meaning making animals. Mm-hmm. And so we're, and that's part of the belief structure mm-hmm. is that we want to know what it means because if we know what it means, then we can use it for our survival. Is that rustling in the grass a snake that could bite me? Or is it a possum that is just looking for insects? Or is it the wind? Mm-hmm. If I know what it is, then I can deal with it. So it's kind of a, you're looking into the future, what what could happen? And a big part of our brain is dedicated to avoiding bad things that might happen. Mm -hmm. So the meaning we give it is also the belief that we have about it. And it's all intermingled and the story we tell about it. That's, you know, the story is the narrative of our beliefs and our, and, uh, and the meanings. Yeah. So if somebody is listening to this right now and they are wanting to create change in their life, they don't want to believe the stories that they have spent most of their life believing, where would you recommend they start? I call this exercise belief self-diagnosis, and it's included in all my eBooks because it's the first place to start to look at what you believe in all the different categories of life. What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about my capabilities? What do I believe about my limitations? What do I believe about other people? What do I believe about God and life and religion and etc. So so there's a, an exercise you do where you just ask yourself something I believe about myself is and then you listen to your mind speaking because that's a way to tap into the subconscious because subconscious will talk to you if you talk in its language. Mm-hmm. So that's a way to bring up what is true and then you just document it. Positive, negative, limiting, unlimiting, what doesn't matter. And then you go through the list and you ask, is this belief interfering with my life or is it beneficial to my life? Because there's lots of beliefs that are beneficial. You know, look both ways before you cross the street. That's a really good belief to have, not only for little kids, but adults, because otherwise you get hit by a bus. Right. So, so we wouldn't want to clear that one, right? But I'm a piece of crap and nobody will love me. That's a belief that you could clear and get out of your way so that you could recognize who you really are, which is a lovable, loving being made of love. So that's the process. So first is the diagnosis, excavating all the beliefs. The next step is beginning the clearing process. And you know we have tens of thousands of beliefs, maybe hundreds of thousands. And so it takes a while. It's a process. But you can 
the more you clear, the clearer you are. Then you clear more stuff and then you clear you are. And then stuff comes up and somebody says something to you or cuts you off in traffic and some other old beliefs come up and then you clear those. I call it the machete technique because, you you know, you can't get through a jungle that's thick to your destination unless you have a machete in your hand. And then you can clear at least what's in your way and take a step forward. And then you can clear the next thing in your way and take a step forward. And you can get all the way to your destination with just a machete in your hand. Yeah, you're, it's so funny because there's been a couple examples you've given that I could see it almost before you said it. And I could picture the bamboo fields when we were in Hawaii and, and like how they were actually like, as humans, we want to clear all of it. Like we, of course, we want to get there fast, right? That's unfortunately what our brains, how we tend to believe. But as you're saying, it's like changing and, and clearing those beliefs, the ones that are right in front of us, the ones that show up, the ones, yes, hundreds of thousands of beliefs we have, we're not going to change them all by tomorrow. Right. Right. Because we've had our whole life to build them. We've had our whole life to believe in them and they're very rooted. But as you say, with the machete, you're able to clear like the ones right in front of you that are not serving you. Exactly. Okay. Okay. What's the name of your technique and your foundation as you explain it? It's called the clear beliefs method. Mm-hmm. Logical name, I think. I love it. <laughs> uh, and um, I offer a training for practitioners, people who want to help other people and also themselves uh, called the clear beliefs coach training. And people can find out about that at clearbeliefs.com. And for people who just want to clear their own beliefs, we have a coaching program with one of my trained coaches who will take the person through all the big blocks that are in their way over a eight or 12 week period. And that's, you can find out about that at clearyourbeliefs.com. And then uh, my personal website has lots of fun stuff to read, including my story, uh, which links to the movie that was made based on my story. Um, that's, that's at liongoodman.com. And the movie based on your story? Yes. That's a, it was a 20-minute short film done by a graduate student at a film school, and it won Best Film at a film festival. It's called a, The Kindness of Strangers. My story is called A Shot in the Light. Wow. Wow. A Shot in the Light. Wow. I can't wait to watch that, like to look in and watch that. Cause I was looking for all of your information today and just reading and fascinated by just the books and the content and things that you've done. Like you've, you've taken, I mean, obviously built these blocks and to get to here, but you've taken through situations that most people would stop or that would have taken them out or would have actually killed them. And that's become a big part of your foundation for everything that you do. There's an old saying, everyone is fighting a great battle. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm of practical mind. I want to know what's going to help that person in that situation and help them move forward. So all of my techniques are very practical. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you do this, that will clear out of your way. If you do this, that will clear out of your way. Uh, is this what's bugging you? Well, let's clear the thing underneath it that's causing that to happen so you can get on with life. Mm-hmm. And one of my books is called Creating on Purpose. And that's about manifestation using the the chakras as a model 
where we help you take any idea and move it down into reality by following the downward flow of energy through the chakras. Um, I wrote that with my partner, Anadea Judith. So that's one of my books. <clears throat> I've got books for men and books on narcissism and lots of other stuff, which you can find on my website. Wow. I will make sure everything is available in the show notes. And I cannot wait to to read more, to honestly read more and dive in more because this work is is fascinating to me. And it's life-changing. It's life-changing. I want to offer one more thing. And that is that we, we are doing monthly free events mm-hmm. on identifying the beliefs that are holding you back in different topics. So we did one on money, one on relationships. The next one is on uh, marketing and sales and visibility. Uh, and people can register for that series at beliefrelief.net. Beliefrelief.net. Yeah. I think that's actually, I it, it's a very interesting timing for this because there's so much more, so many more of us in the online space. And one of the things that I hear from a lot of clients is, you know, I want to show up but either who am I to, or who's going to listen to me, or like I can't do it like she does or he does. So what's the point? And it's always tapping into like, but what is your unique messaging? Like, what is your way to forget however there's doing it? How can you communicate? How can you show up authentically and let your people find you? So I love that you're doing this one because I'll definitely um, I'll definitely put that in the show notes, but we'll look at joining as well. Yeah, and the, the, here again is the same problem. Uh, what's your message? How can you do it? If you just do this and this and this, then your message will get out. People will find you. That's an outside-in solution. Mm-hmm. The, most people don't get stopped by what's possible. They get stopped by what's inside. Mm-hmm. So if someone believes I need to stay invisible to be safe because my father was a beast and, you know, if you said anything, you'd get smacked across the room. um, It doesn't matter what techniques you give them for becoming visible. That's going to stop them. Mm -hmm. And more people are stopped. I'd say 95% of people are stopped from the internal beliefs, resistance, and blocks than any outside circumstance. Because you know, as well as I do, that if you put yourself out there, people see you and respond. Uh, but if you can't be seen or you think nobody's going to want to hear from you because that's what you were told when you were a child, it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult to get past those barriers and actually do the things you need to do. Some people can muscle through. Uh, there, there are people with strong enough will that they can just push through all that resistance push through their blocks and barriers. God damn it, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just do it. That's the the Nike thing. Yeah, easy for them to say because they're all people who can, you know, just go out and run 20 miles a day. And that's, but that's wow. not me. Olympic athletes and all the, like, so you hear it, right? But that's not necessary. That's not your average person. No, the average person has blocks and barriers and beliefs that are in the way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, that's why I found this to be the best leverage. I will make sure that that is all in the show notes. Um, Wow. I could, I could literally talk to you for hours. I thank you so much for everything that you have shared. This has been an incredible conversation and I love the work that you're doing. So I'm just, I'm just grateful our paths have crossed. Me too, Marcia. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And I 
wish everyone who listens well and to remember who you are. Mm, definitely. I, I honestly, yes, so grateful. Let me say one more, one more question I want to ask you. And it's the question I love to ask people when we're wrapping up is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? I am not my body. Ooh. I'm also not my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I'm also not my emotions. I'm sure you've heard the saying, don't believe everything you think. Mm -hmm. don't, believe, don't believe everything you feel either. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. If you love this episode, please submit a rating and review on iTunes and please share it with someone you think could benefit from hearing this message or this podcast. I love connecting and meeting you. So please screenshot the episode and tag me on social media or Instagram stories at Marsha Van W. And until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. <laughs>